Never too late, Nicholas. Yeah, we are. That's, that's much better. <laughs> now, now the world is right. Exactly. And you can you can um, give away you can do better than the commissioner audit you reckon in terms of uh, you've got some suggestions. I I've been incredibly busy and I was up late last night doing uh, on deadline and I had to give a presentation this morning which I was also putting together and I haven't figured it. I don't know anything about the commissioner audit, but fifteen thousand jobs in Canberra won't make lose uh, going won't make people in Canberra. No. Do you, do you want me to give you the headlines? Okay, this is um, from Emma Griffiths, our political correspondent. Um, a raft of potentially explosive spending cuts to government services and payments, um, family payments, childcare, healthcare, education, unemployment and pension payments, aged care and the NDIS are all among those areas in the firing line. The audit also recommends uh, swinging cuts to industry assistance and the public service and a radical shake-up of, of the way all governments tax and do business. Um, it has 86 recommendations detailed in more than 12 1,200 pages, um, and uh, the uh, Business Council of Australia's um, Commission Chief, uh, Tony Shepherd, says he's advised against sudden shocks for people, but says the government must bring future spending commitments in line with our means. Well, there you go. That's, so it's good that they've released it. Yes. Um, the journal- journalists have been in the lockup studying it. Yeah, no, no, it's good that, you know, it's good that someone puts a, a blueprint out there, and I, I mean, you know, just those... Just that list of things, mm. you know, they could be good, they could be bad. Obviously, it depends on how they. It depends on, you know, what what one means by, you know, something on unemployment might be, you know, might be some detail that I don't know about that is worth cutting. It might not be, you know. So it's pretty impossible to comment from a bunch of. What about the commission argues that the full value of the family home should be included in the means test for aged care support? Really. Why? Why? Because we are taxed, uh, you know, we, we, capital is taxed. If you earn money by working, you're taxed. And if you earn money because you have saved uh, money or, more, you know, as, as is becoming somewhat more likely, you, you inherited it, uh, it, makes sense to, to, it makes sense to pay tax on that. And the family home is, is a huge... It's essentially a tax dodge. I mean, that's not how people think of it. They think of it very fondly, and so they should. But that doesn't, you know, they're getting they're getting very valuable economic services out of their mm. home, and they should pay tax on that. And again, that sounds like a horrible thing to say, but the point of that is to pay less tax on other things. Uh, so generally speaking, that's good. And and the way, the sensible way to do it, I would think, rather than just chuck it out, which I expect, you know, that's what politicians will jump at is to say all right well we won't tax the family home uh, you know up to some figure like let's be generous and call it two million dollars and we'll tax uh, homes over two million dollars as if they're as if they're producing a stream of income just like any other asset that you might own like shares or or uh, property that is earning rent Um, but you reckon it will remain a recommendation <laughs> um, <laughs> It'll remain it just that. by the government. I doubt it will, but... I'm, a bit like negative gearing, Nicholas? Or what's that? A bit like negative gearing. Uh, yeah, but I mean, what, my answer to the... But, but unfortunately, we have this habit of... I call it the tragedy of the excluded middle, which is that we say you for or against this thing. And if you, you know, if it's just on or off, then the community, you know, you can whip up enough 
frenzy of fear in the community to stop it. So the answer is to say, well, let's get rid of the worst of negative gearing. So you could say, for instance, that you can have some negative gearing if your outgoings on a property are a bit more than your incomings, but you can't have more than 5 or 10% uh, negative gearing as a as a ratio of the income that you know of the of the of your outgoings or something like that because negative gearing is one of the structural elements behind a lot of really big tax avoidance mm. schemes so you know there are just ways of I I just hope that we don't have the tragedy of the excluded middle and instead we have a crafty government that. Uh, says, all right, well, we can't, do, we can't do the whole thing here, but we, what we can do is we can um, phase some of these things in or, or at least introduce them to the extent that, um, you know, most people would support them. And I think if you're talking about, you know, capital gains tax on the family home, well, if someone makes more than $2 million out of selling their home, why the hell shouldn't they pay a capital gains tax? I would have thought most people would think that's okay. Now, you, in in an article in the Fairfax Papers today, you say there's a strong case against dividend imputation. Correct. Uh, tell, me, tell me, explain that. Ah, okay. Well, dividend, firstly, we better explain what dividend imputation is. Yes, if, thank you. If, um, if Alex Sloan owns BHP Billiton shares, she will get I uh, don't. dividends paid to her. And those, those um, dividends, the, the BHP Billiton pays tax and then it seems fair enough that BHP uh, is able to pass the tax that it has paid in company tax onto you as a shareholder when they pay you dividends. And in a sense, it is fair. In a perfect world, um, that's a very fair system. It, it, it gets rid of... Uh, it get, gets rid of double taxation and various non-neutralities. So for instance, the tax treatment of debt and the tax treatment of equity, the tax treatment of lending money to the bank and getting interest as opposed to the tax treatment of investing in a company and getting dividends. They're very different. So there is a case that that's what dividend imputation is there mm. to try and address. But the, uh, you see they haven't asked the Spice Girls question which is we really, really want government revenue. And to get government revenue, you have to... You're making an omelette and you have to break some eggs. So the real question is, um, yes, we would like there to be perfect neutrality, but we would also like there to be a lower company tax rate. And so the question is, uh, dividend imputation costs more than $20 billion a year. Yeah, I couldn't believe that figure. Twenty. It's a huge amount. Mm. I mean, I haven't looked it up. I haven't done the calculations recently, but it's it's a huge amount. And it's not surprising because think about it. You've got um, every bit of tax that is paid by a company and, and company tax receipts. Again, when I last looked, I don't know exactly what it is now, but it's sort of $60, $70 billion. Um, uh, so the company pays that tax and then they pass that tax, the, the, the credit for that tax, onto shareholders. Now, more than 50% of the shareholders in listed companies in Australia are domestically are domestic uh, taxpayers. And so they, they get that tax back. So you can see that's a, that's a really big amount of money. Mm. And so the question is, would you rather spend that money giving it back to Australian shareholders or would you like to spend the money cutting the rate, cutting the company tax rate? The reason you would do it, the, the latter thing, the, the reason you'd cut the company tax rate is that um, what the dividend imputation system does is it discriminates specifically in favour of domestic shareholders 
foreign shareholders can't get any benefit from these these uh, tax credits. It sounds like it's a good idea to discriminate against uh, in favour of ourselves. Mm. But by discriminating against foreigners, guess what happens? Foreigners invest less in our country. Uh, so foreigners, most for, most of the foreign capital here will come from a, a you know an institutional investor or something like that that has a global portfolio and their exposure to Australian assets is say two percent, whereas Australian Australians' exposure to the Australian share market is say fifty percent or something like that. So if you improve the after-tax return for foreigners, they're going to jump in and they're going to demand quite a lot more Australian shares and they're going to drive the share price up and driving the share price up is, of course, lowering the cost of capital. Mm -hmm. So I think that's as, that's as clearly as I can explain it. I hope uh, I hope you and your listeners mm, pretty damn good. followed that. Um, probably walk away going... Mm. What do we really, really want? <laughs> we want to discriminate against us, against foreigners or against ourselves, and if we discriminate against ourselves, we actually do better because it's the foreigners who are the ones with the the greater elasticity, the greater responsiveness to the to the after-tax returns of shares. Mm. And uh, we get a lot more capital in Australia. Workers get more machines to work with. They make more stuff. But it is a bugbear that, that companies like Google and Apple don't very... Yeah, yeah, well, that's another, mm. uh, that's another issue, and it's... Uh, uh, but but uh, they would actually probably pay as much or more tax under this regime just because they have less reason to shift it offshore. But that's completely right. There's a, there's that, that, in fact, that, that again tips the scale further in the argument, in the direction of the argument that I'm putting, that, um, uh, you know, we're getting, we're robbing ourselves of investment and tax revenue by having a company tax rate as high as it is for foreigners. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Gruen is with me uh, this afternoon, my favourite economist, and um, he hasn't been in the uh, the lockup of the uh, Commission of Audit report, which is now being released. And I know Adam Shirley will be talking about this on Drive in much more detail, including journalists who've been in the lockup and economists uh, who've been studying it. We, we're not throwing that Nicholas's way this afternoon, but um, I knew you'd have something to say. <laughs> but you've been, um, I suppose, the Commission of Audit uh, goes to the issue of jobs too, in a way. Um, um, and you've been doing some big thinking on that, Nicholas, I have, I have, which I really enjoyed reading, actually. Don't know if I agree with it all, but... You don't agree with it all? Well, we'll, we'll explain. I, I just... Well, I, I might start with the with the line of who writes a bad reference. You're going to start with the line, who, who writes a bad reference? Yes. Well... Um, In relation to your research and your thinking, yeah. Well, well I'm not... Quite sure what you're getting at, but what I what what um, this is a piece of work for a foreign um, client. This is a foreign client of Lateral Economics who is interested in the question of whether open data, mm. that is, governments releasing more data uh, and trying to get more uh, more um, data flowing in in our world, if that if how much economic benefit that can have and. The example that, that we one one example that we've looked at is the quality of workplaces. So we have lots of debates in Australia about how free our workplace should be, but one thing we don't talk about much is the fact that when you go to a new workplace, usually you're basically on the on a bit of a wing and a prayer. You don't unless you know someone there. You don't know whether it's going to be a good workplace. If they tell you they're family-friendly, they might say that. They might think that, but they might subtly or unsubtly 
not be family friendly. They might not have good career structures or whatever. So um, firstly, in the public sector, we have a lot of data on this. Um, so the Australian Public Service Commission does an elaborate survey every year and it publishes a big fat report called the State of the Service and that tells you uh, generally fairly encouraging metrics on what what um, public servants think of their place of work. Uh, there are some there are some embarrassing um, question embarrassing answers you know like um, my workplace deals with underperformance well that's <laughs> one of the questions that comes in pretty pretty that's very telling. But most of it is uh, does pretty well. Um, so, so but, but but we release that data. We, we release that data in such a way that you can't ask the question, "How well did Attorney Generals go this year? How well did uh, Treasury go this year?" Which is pretty interesting data, I would have thought. Um, and the sort of data which, if it was released, would see the managers of these organisations trying pretty hard to have workplaces that their employees were able to reflect well on in that survey. And out of this, what what could be the, the kind of real benefits? Well, um, so, so it sounds sort of like an airy-fairy thing to say, you know, it'd be nice if we had more workplace satisfaction, uh, workers happier and so on. But we know that there are very strong links between the satisfied workers and, pro- and productivity. Uh, satisfied workers work work um, more or smarter, if you like, uh, will be prepared to work harder in certain kinds of circumstances. Their stress levels go down, their absentee levels go down, their their preparedness, speaking of um, tolerating underperformance, their preparedness to <coughs> speak out against people who are underperforming goes up. And there's some very interesting research about teachers, which is that teachers who have moved jobs and, and uh, therefore um, improved the match between themselves and the job that they get, their teaching performance rises. Uh, clear, uh, substantially, and there's some there's some um, work by the Grattan Institute suggesting that if we got teacher quality, if teacher quality increased by 10 percent, then by 2050 that would be worth 90 billion dollars mm. a year. So if we could, so massive and getting the match up right. What's that? Massive payoff and getting the match up right. Massive payoff. And this is, I mean, so much of, uh, and again, I, I shouldn't say much about the, the Commission of Audit because I haven't read it, but so much of our attention is, goes to cost cutting, and cost cutting is important. We want to do things at the minimum cost we can, but the really big story will always be in value augmenting rather than cutting costs. And education is just a super way to do that. And um, uh, so, so it's a real case of what's there not to like. And, and, and my that that question I put at the front of who writes a bad reference? How reliable is the data? Um, how truthful? Well, um, that's a good question. And I think what you would try and do is you would that would become part. If you had a, uh, if you wanted to pursue this, you then say, well, let's do some research and do some serious evidence gathering about the 
extent to which these these you know the, the extent to which these reports are truthful. They are, after all, anonymous. Um, nobody's you know the, 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 there are ways to to pick up whether people are. Uh, trying to game the system or do something mm. nasty. To because them. we all know of the dud manager that people want to get rid of. Um, well, yeah, but you, <laughs> see but, but you see, you, <laughs> I, I think you, you gave away more than you should have in the argument, Alex, when you said there are dud managers people want to get rid of. Or dud employees. But, I, I was thinking, you know, across departments. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, not talking about the ABC. There's no one dud in the ABC. <laughs> well, no, of course not. <laughs> I, I, the words would not cross my lips, Alex. My lips are sealed. On that particular matter, um, but yeah, so so you don't want this to play into the hands of the of mediocrity. You want mm. it to play into the hands of excellence, and I think you can do that. But you know, you don't do it by making dogmatic statements. You do it by going in with your eyes open and making sure that you understand what you're doing. You're measuring what you're doing, and you try you you try to be aware of these things. Certainly, there isn't a large company I, I think in the world that doesn't measure what its employees think of, of, of their workplace. And that tells you that this is a very valuable thing to do. Uh, and the other part of this idea that I'm trying to promote is that that's a way to get information out into the world, not just from governments, but also from corporations. So how would that work? You could say, well, a corporation won't publish its data because the data might reflect badly on the corporation. But the problem with that argument is that it doesn't answer the question, why don't corporations that are doing really well, why don't they publish their data? And I think the answer to that question is that they don't publish their data because there is no standard to which they can report which will enable them to demonstrate that they're better than other firms in various ways. So, so they won't just say commercial incompetence? What's that? They won't just say commercial incompetence? Well, let's say you're a company and you know that you're in the top decile of companies on family friendliness, on happy workers and things like that. If you could release that data and show it to the world, then why wouldn't you? Well, the reason you wouldn't is that if you release it, another company that doesn't perform as well as you releases a data from a completely different kind of survey that looks as good as your data. And so you just end up in a kind mm. of dialogue of the deaf. So what you need to do is you need to be able to, um, to, to allow, allow a standard to emerge that companies want to report to because it has this, uh, because it has this ability to allow people to make comparisons. So, so the government would say that the prime minister might say, "Who wants to take Tony Abbott's challenge or, or Bill Shorten's challenge or whoever?" It doesn't even have to be the prime minister, but or it doesn't even have to be the government. Um, you know, it can be the can be an archbishop or a football coach if they've got got enough, you know, a community uh, prominence and and so on. But a government's obviously the the kind of thing that could do this well. Who wants to take my challenge? What are the companies in Australia who might want to get together with the government to assemble a standard that they all have confidence in and that we will then market as a standard that we would like firms to report to? Some will, some won't. Mm. We can send Australian Bureau of Statistics out around Australia and randomly audit 2,000 Australian businesses with the standard so that we know whenever you get a result 
against the standard where you are in the landscape of Australian firms. Are you in the top 60% for, for family friendliness, top 20% for remuneration received or whatever? Uh, and that way you get all this information mm. out, of, out of companies and people are able to work out where they want to work and match their own lives and their own selves and their own temperament and personality mm. to a job that's more likely to suit them. Nicholas Groen, always interesting. What's there not to like? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, 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 just, I just wondered about that, you know, people being so forthcoming. And, and, but as you say, you've got that argument about, the, you know, establishing a standard. So maybe that goes to my – I'm not saying that I didn't like it. I was just saying I just wondered if it was going to work because we know how dearly that companies hold that sort of information yeah. and whether would, they would ever put anything out that would said, actually, our employers hated this. No, they won't. Yeah. They won't do that. Yeah. The ones who, whose employees hate things – You'll just have to wonder why they're not putting their data out. But the companies whose employees love it, they'll put the data out. That's the and so that's better. Than okay. Um, just before you go, um, a texter was asking your opinion about privatising Auspost because that's one of the recommendations from the Commission of Audit. Um, yeah, I think that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm relaxed about that. In fact, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't have. In, in there are some arguments to say it shouldn't even have been corporatised. Unfortunately. We have never developed a philosophy of public enterprise. If we're running publicly owned enterprises as if they were private enterprises, which is effectively what we're doing with Australia Post, I don't think there's much point in hanging on to them. But that's, perhaps we could have another session on what you might do with a public enterprise if you actually had a philosophy of public enterprise. Oh, that's a goodie. Yep. See you <laughs> next month on the philosophy of public enterprise. <laughs> We will. Thanks, Nicholas. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Alice.